0: welcome to the gathering chattanooga's audio resources this message is part of a teaching from the gospel of mark for more information on the gathering or to find additional resources visit gatheringchattanooga.com again that's gatheringchattanooga.com and please consider subscribing to this podcast we hope you enjoy and that god blesses you richly through the teaching of his word Right, if you'll turn with me to Mark chapter 6, if you're not already, if you were just listening that time, now you need to turn and look at it, Mark chapter 6. Last couple of weeks, we spent our time in Mark chapter 5, and in Mark chapter 5, we focused really on three different people. We focused on Jesus, of course, that's what Mark is all about, he's writing to uh, Roman Christians, as persecution began to break out around the time of Peter's death, but a little before, a little after, we're not exactly sure. And he's telling them uh, about Jesus, the Son of God, and why they need to focus and believe and trust in him, especially as difficulties mounted. Perhaps we can relate a little bit to that. Uh, and so they would need to know that Jesus was who he said he was. And so we've, we're spending all this time talking about Jesus. Hey, how about that? Um, but we've, we've focused the last couple of weeks on three people. Three people who were in hopeless situations. You have the man who had a demon over in the region of the Gerasenes. You had a, tw- a 12-year-old girl who was on the edge of death who actually did die. And you have a woman who for 12 years had a bleeding issue All of them were hopeless. Nothing could be done. Man could not affect them. There was no medicine. The lady, she had wiped out her savings because she tried to get help to stop this bleeding only made it worse. So each of these three people were hopeless until they came face-to-face with the one. And each of them, when they came face-to-face with Jesus, the only one who could help them, he is the one who did help them. And he turned their hopelessness into lives filled with hope. And so that's exciting for us to think about. It's exciting the fact that Jesus uh, cares that much for us. And so we move from that kind of a situation now to focusing on Jesus uh, continuing his mission and then what that has for us as we look at what happened to these people and we know that we can experience great hope. Much the same way that they did. Many of you have been in situations where you felt like, man, there's just no hope for any change. There's no hope for anything different. There's no hope that, that we'll make it through this. There are people I've been hearing with that are like, I don't think we've got any hope at all left in this world. Look, it's going crazy. But there's that one, right? And I ask you, every time you look at that date and you think back on 2020 and how bad it was, and now there's a one there, look at that one and remember Jesus, the one who offers that kind of hope. And it's the kind of hope that the rest of the world needs to see. They need to be able to look at that one as well and know that he cares for them. And so we've got Jesus changing uh, scenes. And as he changes scenes, he's got a whole different set of issues to deal with. As you heard it read before, we're starting in verse 1, where he left there, it says, and he came to his hometown And his disciples followed him. So all of this that I just talked about took place in Capernaum on the uh, western side of the Sea of Galilee. Of course, he went over across the Sea of Galilee to the eastern side to the region of the Gerasenes. And that's where the demon man was possessed. uh, And Jesus delivered him. He goes back over, only affecting that person. I pointed that out. I think that's important that Jesus went just for that one too. And he came back and he dealt with the other two people back in Capernaum, around the area of Bethsaida, or Bethsaida, however you want to call that, which was the home of Peter and Andrew and also James and John. Where we leave Scripture from last week, he just left the house of the little girl that he rose from the dead. And now he has has headed uh, some 25, approximately 25 miles inland to Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth. That's where we get that, in case you didn't see that. And it is a very different Uh, setting in every way to go from Capernaum to Nazareth. I'm going to try to describe to you a little bit about what it would be like. Well, let me just give, give me a second. So Nazareth Nazareth was completely insignificant. I mean, nothing ever happened in Nazareth. We could say that it was the sticks of the region, right? So I'm I'm not in any way saying that Jesus was redneck, I'm only saying that based on where he grew up, he'd probably feel pretty comfortable with us down here in the South. You know what I'm saying? That's the kind of place it was. It's a place like Hot Coffee, Mississippi, or, or Busy Corner, or It, Mississippi. I only know those strange names because that's where I grew up. So I know that. I couldn't take you there. I wouldn't have any reason to take you there, and you wouldn't want to go there. And for anybody's watching, family and friends who are from there, please forgive me, but... That's the kind of place Nazareth was. It wasn't anywhere significant. Out in the middle of nowhere. Nobody ever went there and there wasn't anything that really came out of there. This is the reason why in John chapter 1, when Philip was telling Nathanael about uh, Jesus, he responded by saying, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Because nothing good ever came out of Nazareth. That's just the way it was. That's the kind of town this is. Very small town like 500 people at its capacity. If we just put chairs all through here, took the tables out, this fits around 300 people. You want to add our chapel, pack it up, that'd be about six or 700 people. Nazareth, the entire town of Nazareth could easily fit in this building. That's the kind of place that it was. So Jesus is going home. And when you think about Nazareth, you kind of want to know why, right? Why go there? And Mark gives us a pretty good clue if we take a look at the bookends of verses 1 through 6. Verses 1 through 6, that's the first section, and it deals with Jesus in his hometown. The second half, as you heard earlier, is when uh, he sends his disciples out. And so right now, we're looking at Jesus in uh, Nazareth. And in verse 2, Mark tells us that he began to teach in the synagogue. So there's the first bookend. The other end of that book... It tells us that he went around to the other villages teaching. So with those bookends, the reason we can tell that Jesus went to uh, Nazareth was to teach, to proclaim the gospel. He was going home, right? He was not going there for mom's famous lentil soup. He was going there because of the kingdom. He was going there to proclaim hope to those in his own hometown. And no, he did not start There in his ministry, in his own ministry. But he did include it. And he told us to start where we are. You remember in the Great Commission at the end of Matthew, he told us to go into all the world and and teach and baptize. Right? And then he said, start in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and other most parts of the world. That's where we're to go. When Jesus, before he left, the mission was start where you are and then move your way out. We are the gathering Chattanooga. We put it in our name, right? We're the gathering, but we're the gathering focused on Chattanooga. So that's where we start. Now, some of you were born and raised here. Let me see if you were born and raised here. Let me raise them high and proud. Born and raised here. Andrew, I see you back there. Yeah, uh, I see. I don't see high and proud. Can't see you folks at home, but... whatever. Uh, so a few of you were born and raised here. Honestly, for you, it can be a little different. It can be a little more difficult uh, when you are trying to reach the place where you were, uh, and it can be a little harder. It certainly made it harder for Jesus. But if we're going to be the church that prioritizes the one, if we're really going to focus on making sure that he is glorified, then we have to be about the mission Right where we are. Now, in verse seven, again, as I mentioned, Jesus sent out his own disciples to preach and to heal, and to cast out demons. As he did, he gave them authority to carry out the mission then, and he gives us authority to carry out the mission today. It wasn't easy on his disciples then, and it's not easy on his disciples today. It's not easy for us. He gave instructions on how to handle that in uh, that in the following verses, but. First, I want us to look at how Jesus handled it. How did he go about this when he went home? And we got a clue that things might not go so great all the way back in chapter 3. When we were looking there, Jesus was in the house, right? And his family came from Nazareth to take him home. They weren't taking him home for mom's lentil soup. They were taking him home because they thought he lost his mind. out of his ever-loving gourd, right? Because he was saying things and doing things and, and he had the authorities who were upset with him. And so they're like, he's gonna get himself killed. So they went to take him back. So if they thought he was losing his mind, imagine what the rest of the town thought about him in Nazareth. Because as I said, it was a very small town. And so they would have all grown up together. They would have lived close to each other. They would have all gotten into each other's business. They would have known who was doing what, who was saying what, and who was thinking what. And they, having grown up together, they, I'm sure, knew little Jesus. Right? Little Jesus, the carpenter's son. They knew who he was. And you know how it is when you grow up in one place. It's always difficult when you go back when you grow up in one place, you never really grow up, do you? Because especially the adults that you were around while you were growing up, you go home and they're like, oh, little David's back to see us, right? That's, that's kind of the way it was, you know, growing up in Jackson, Mississippi in a close-knit church. When I left and I would come back to visit, I was gone for a while, I would come back home to visit and, you know, they could still see me as the little crazy kid with his two best friends terrorizing around the church, running around like our kids do now. And you, you know why I don't get onto them? Because that would be hypocritical is, is what that would be. And so that's the way we're seen. And sometimes we never quite get over that. A lot of things changed about me, but not in their eyes. Since he was a great kid who grew up in their town, we know that Jesus would have been a great kid. Uh, it was really impossible to think of him as anything else. He was welcome to read Scripture in the synagogue, even though Jesus hadn't apprenticed under a great rabbi. If you think of the apostle Paul, Paul, uh, before he was a believer, he was a respected uh, Pharisee. Why was he a respected Pharisee? Because he had a respectable teacher. He had a respectable rabbi, Gamaliel. He was his teacher, and he was well-known they knew that, that uh, Paul had gotten a great education. And so Paul, when Paul spoke, he was listened to, not so much because of Paul, but because of Gamaliel. Jesus didn't have that. Heck, I've got more degrees than Jesus had. And so why should they listen to him? What was it about him that made such a big deal? And having some guy who he had suckered into having them follow him around, he had these disciples, big deal. They were suckers. And so they followed him around. It wasn't going to be enough for them. So now Jesus is going to stand in the synagogue and read. He's going to read. He's going to give a word. Now Mark doesn't tell us what that is, but Luke does. And it's Luke chapter 4. If you want to look there, you can't. But in Luke 4, Luke tells the same story, but he gives us a little more detail on this. And so uh, in his account... Jesus stood to read from Isaiah where it says this part. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. So far, all is good. Right? We can all do that. You could do that. I can invite somebody up, come up and read Isaiah, and you would read it, and you would sit down. We're like, oh, that was a very lovely reading. Nice rendition, good inflection, good, very you know, feeling it was good, very, very good. But that's not the case because Jesus then finished it by saying, This has happened today, this has been fulfilled in your presence as you hear it. Was Jesus saying? That's me. Now, let's go back. Let's get the context. This is little Jesus boy? Who's now saying he's the son of God? I think they could have been upset for a couple of reasons. One, because he came in like he was something special, when in reality, he was just the carpenter's son. So, trying to be something more than he was. But even worse, he was claiming the sacred scripture referred to himself. So, so imagine if you... Uh, If somebody that you grew up with, one of your friends from way back when, where you used to run around with when you were kids, they leave town for several years and then they come back. Can't say several with Jesus and his whole thing lasted for three years, his whole ministry, but but they're gone for a little while. Now they come back and when they come back, they do that. They pick up the Bible, man. They read that and they say, oh, by the way, that's me. (laughs) How are you going to feel? How are you going to respond to that? It's probably not going to be with, hey, can I be one of your disciples too? That sounds cool. That's not really the way it goes. And so uh, he had to deal with that because they're thinking, you know what, this dude's a nut. Maybe some were jealous. But I mean, folks around town had, I don't know, stickers on their bumper that said, you know, my kid's a straight A student. Mary's got one on hers that says, my kid's the son of God. Right? I mean, it's just hard to compete with that. So we don't know specifically why. Uh, They felt the way they did, but for whatever reason, they saw Jesus differently. And interestingly, the way they said, the way Mark lays this out is he uses the word offended. They were offended. Now in the Greek, that refers to a stumbling block. So Jesus was a stumbling block to them. And that's interesting, I think. Rather than seeing Jesus as the only way to the Father, they couldn't get past his past to see he was more than just a little carpenter boy. They couldn't see that he was something special. He didn't meet their expectations of being the son of God. And I think that's a problem that a lot of people have. They can't get past who he is or they have a specific idea of who he is. And when he doesn't meet it, they dismiss him and they miss the Father. And of course, in missing the Father, they miss heaven altogether. And that's the danger of creating a Jesus of our own making. And maybe in your mind, he's your buddy. Maybe he's your sugar daddy that you pray to for good stuff. Or it could be that, that he's just so cool. He approves of everything you do and he just doesn't care. And we hold on to the idea of grace in such a way that we end up abusing grace. Grace is amazing. God is amazing in how he loves us and he bestows grace on us, but we can get to the point where we totally misunderstand who Jesus really is. We forget that he's the holy son of God and we abuse grace. The prophets had painted a pretty clear picture of who the Messiah would be and where he would come from and what he would do and the kind of things that he would say, but they did not believe. They really should have known. Whenever we answer the question, who is Jesus? Whenever you answer in your own mind, in your own heart, whenever somebody asks you, who is Jesus? We better be able to go to Scripture for our definition. We better be able to go to the Word of God and say, this is who Jesus is. This is who the Son of God is. And we paint an actual, uh, a realistic picture of who Jesus actually is. Because if not, our own creations, you know, our robo-Christ is not going not gonna to fit the bill and it's going to be a stumbling block to people around us. So Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown, among his relatives, and in his household. And we know that he, they were not thinking highly of him because they referred to him as Mary's son. Now, is that a problem? What well, is? because they said he was a carpenter's son at first. Now, that, that's not a big deal to the Jews. In the, in the Jewish life, that was actually a pretty, good, a pretty good job, a respectable job. But it's really clear, we understand that Mark was writing to Romans and they would have heard it kind of the way we did. Oh, just, ah, he's just a, a carpenter. It's so like saying something uh, derogatory towards him. Nothing against carpenters. I'm very grateful for you. I live under something that a carpenter did. I'm very happy about that. But when they, they turn to saying that he was the son of Mary, the problem is, is that in Jewish life, you always refer to the father. If you're talking about a son, you're saying the son of so-and-so, even if they're dead. So it didn't matter. Jo- Joseph may have been dead at this point. It didn't matter because he still should have been the son of Joseph. But in calling him the son of Mary, the implication is there's some illegitimacy that has happened here. And that is what they were thinking. That's what they're implying. That's what they're trying to get across. Hey, isn't this the guy who's the son of Mary? We may not know who the daddy is. and We know there was something that went kind of strange, and the stories they came up with, and the excuses that they used, kind of hard for us to get our minds around. But there's something amiss with him. These people really did not believe, and it amazed Jesus. Which is kind of weird, isn't it, when you think about that? That it amazed Jesus? It's like it amazed God? God was amazed by this? Why in the world would Jesus be amazed? How is that possible? Well, think about it this way. They're 25 miles from the center of everything that had been going on so far. They're right in the middle of all of the activity. If you remember how we look through the first couple of chapters in Mark, there were people from all over the region who were coming to hear this man. That is still within the realm or the, 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 uh, the region of which word would have gone out. They would have heard about this, and yet they did not get it. They didn't hear or understand or believe when the word of his miracles and his teaching had spread. They totally missed it. And now he was in their midst. He was right there with them. And they totally missed him. He was teaching in the synagogue in a way that amazed them. And yet they missed him. I mean, they admitted that. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. Where did this man get these things, they said? What is this wisdom that has been given to him, and how are these miracles performed by his hands? I mean, Jesus was there to reveal this kingdom of God, this kingdom of hope. He was there to change them, to heal them, to save them, and they missed him. And how did they respond? They were offended. But that's what the gospel does, doesn't it? The gospel offends. The gospel can be a stumbling block. It tells us what we don't want to hear about ourselves. It strips away our Facebook profile that we have it all together, the facade and the self-delusion of independence. It points out our ugliness, and nobody takes that with grace. We don't like that, and so we push against it. And so it really isn't that hard to be offended by what is being said, or at least to understand how they could have been offended. But that's what the first part of the gospel does. It reveals our brokenness. It reveals our sin. It gets us to the point where we understand who we really are before it moves us to the Savior. It, it's, it's there to convince us that we need a Savior, And then it introduces us to who that Savior is. That's the gospel. That's what it's all about. But unfortunately, some people never get there, either because of their own hard-heartedness, or maybe it's because we never get over the fear of taking it to them to give them the opportunity to make a choice, to make a judgment on who Jesus is. Jesus sent the 12 out to do the same things that he was doing, and yet he told he told them what to do if they were rejected, right? He gives them pretty explicit instructions. And the implication there is, of course, that some would reject. Whole towns might reject them as Nazareth had done Jesus. So they were, they were to, to uh, shake the dust from their feet because if these people, if these towns get offended, then, then they're instructed, okay, you've told them, You've communicated them. They, were, they didn't receive it. They rejected it. Then as you leave, shake the dust off of your sandals as a testimony against them. Yet even in that very act of shaking the dust from their feet, the Jews would have had a context for that. That wouldn't be the first time. The Jews would have understood that because they had heard that before. And it's a testimony. It's a warning. If you shake the dust off of your feet as you're leaving, it means that I believe there is something bad coming to this household. I believe there's something bad coming to this town. So even in that display, uh, before the people, they were still warning them, if you don't consider this and you don't respond and you don't listen to what I said and you don't heed the gospel, then there is something very bad that is going to take place and that is that you will fall under judgment. There was still a testimony and this is hard it is hard taking the gospel to the world is hard and it's much harder than having to pack lightly for a trip and that's kind of what Jesus said he said look don't take too much just take a little bit Uh, because the reason is he was everything that they were going to need. He was going to demonstrate that he was their provider. Don't take too much. You don't need, you know, travel light. You'll be able to get up and move and go somewhere else and do what I'm calling you to do, get from town to town. Don't worry about all these things that you feel like you need. I am the one that you need, and I will provide for you. And as they learn to trust him to meet their physical needs... They would learn that he would give them everything they needed to faithfully proclaim the kingdom of God in the middle of rejection, in the middle of opposition and offense. Yes, there were going to be some who rejected. There were some who would probably get upset. They would face opposition, but he would give them the strength to do what they needed to do and then move on. And when they were rejected, they would push on to the next town. The thing is, telling people what they don't want to hear is never easy. It's never easy from here either. I mean, a pastor, a preacher, to stand up behind a pulpit—it's it's not easy either. Because sometimes you have to say what people don't want to hear. Sometimes you have to say hard things. Man, I've had to say some hard things from this place right now, and it's—and it's like, whoa, you're stepping on toes now, bro. And I'm like, yeah, because the word of God has stepped all over my toes. That's the way this works. And so it's difficult. We don't go into the world with some uh, high and mighty uh, position over people. We go understanding that we too are broken in need of a savior. And this is what these people were learning. If we don't push on and get past our fear and our complacency, then people are not gonna have that opportunity to respond. And the apostles obeyed Jesus and he blessed their work. If you skip down to verse 30, same chapter, chapter 6, verse 30. You're going to see where they come back to Jesus and they report on all the things they have done. And what is the setting? They are with the 5,000 that are about to be fed. And we get a picture of the masses and the multitudes coming around. Very much, it would be a response to what the, what the apostles had been doing, that they had been going to all of these villages and telling them about Jesus. And now people are flocking around. And 5,000 doesn't scratch the surface Man, when they're talking about 5,000, they're talking about 5,000 men. That's the way they counted back then. So you take 5,000 men, you take maybe the same number of women and then one or two children, you're talking upwards of 15 to 20,000 people. What an effect the gospel was having in that area. And I kind of wonder what would happen or what could happen in Chattanooga if we just obeyed and trusted in Jesus like that. What would happen if we decided to make our mission to point everyone in Chattanooga to the one? I want to go back to the people in Nazareth for a minute. And let's see what's at stake here. The people rejected Jesus. And the response was that he could not do any of the other works that he had been doing in all of the other areas. He couldn't do it. That's the way Mark writes it. And it wasn't that their unbelief stripped him. I mean, that's why. It was because of their unbelief, Mark tells us, because they didn't believe that he couldn't do these things. But it wasn't their unbelief that stripped him of some power. It wasn't like, oh, you don't believe that I can't do anything. I'd love to, but I can't. It was that their unbelief disqualified them from receiving the blessing. He wasn't able to because of their unbelief. Unbelief resulted in missed blessing. Unbelief always results in missed blessings. Don't be afraid, just believe. Remember that's what Jesus said to Jairus last week and the passage we looked at. His daughter had just died. And Jairus was at a turning point. He was at a crossroads because he had people who were coming to him from his house saying, it's all over, stop messing, stop bothering the, the, the teacher. Don't mess with him anymore. Don't bother him. He can't do anything. So he's listening to this on one hand. On the other, this is Jesus saying, no, 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 Block that away. Block him out. You listen to me. You keep your eyes focused right here. Don't be afraid. And can you imagine, parents, can you imagine the fear? I mean, it's worse than fear. It's fear realized. It is the absolute bottom falling out when you've been trying to get help. And the teacher, the one you believe and you know for sure can keep her from dying. He doesn't do it in time. And now she dies and the whole world falls out from under your feet. And he looks at you and he says, "Don't be afraid. Just believe, man. That's a that's a tall order, is it not? That's a tall order. And he chose to believe, and he received the blessing of getting his daughter back. And God doesn't always do that that way. He has his ways and his reasons and, the, and his means, and he does that. But he calls us, regardless of the situation. Don't be afraid. Just believe." Belief was the key then. It was the requirement. And it's the requirement today. It still is today. These people didn't believe and they missed out. They missed their blessing. And so what did he do? He left. He left. Much like it had happened a few days before when he sailed across the Sea of Galilee to the, that region of the Gerasenes. And he ministered to the one man who had the demon and he was prepared to bring the kingdom, the news of the kingdom. And they were more concerned with their pigs than in what he had to say. And he left. And they missed it. Back in Nazareth, Jesus left and he made the rounds to the neighboring villages. Now let's pause. I want you to think about this. Jesus had come right into their midst in Nazareth. He was there. He revealed himself to them, yet they could not get over the preconceived ideas in order to believe in him. And so he left, and he went to all the other villages in the area. He visited Nazareth, and they missed him. He was moving all around them, but they, they, missed, they continued to be hardened in their hearts. And I think that the, da- the church is in danger of doing the same thing, We preach the gospel every week. We talk about Jesus every week. We sing songs to Jesus every week. We go through this week in and week out. And yet there are people who miss him. There are people perhaps in this room right now, perhaps people watching online, who have heard the gospel so much that you've become completely immune to the gospel that you've become inoculated to the gospel. And so it has no effect. It's not that you were transformed. It's just that you've heard it so much and you've gone through the motions so much that there's nothing that actually goes on in the soul and it has no effect. Or maybe you haven't heard the gospel at all. Maybe you have not heard of the good news that Jesus has come to take away your sins to give you his righteousness. So when the Father sees you, he sees one who has been made complete in his eyes and he is continuing to make you fit for heaven. That's incredibly wonderful news. And keep trying instead to understand, but you can't comprehend what this grace of Jesus really is because you keep trying to earn his love or you doubt that he can really love you, but then you sing about amazing grace. And I look at you like a Nego Montoya and say, You know, the grace, you keep using that word, but I don't think it means what you think it means. Because you're just not getting it. How could he love us that much? And yet, Jesus really is that wonderful. He is that forgiving. He's that perfect. And he cares about you that much. That's who Jesus is. That's what they kept missing. Now there's another way in which I think the church is in danger. And that is if we continue to fear the rejection of men to the gospel so that we fail to carry out the mission in the world, then we're in danger of the blessing of God being removed from us as well. One of our great purposes is the mission. It's what we are called to do. And if we fail to do that and we fail to do that and we fail to do that and we don't prioritize the one in our church, then we might miss the blessing of God that he would use us and make an impact in our community. We have a calling on our lives. You have a calling on your life, individually, personally. I just want you to imagine what God can do in you to bring the masses to the feet of Jesus. Do you believe? And don't be afraid, just believe. That's what Jesus said then, it's what Jesus said now. The question that I leave with you is the question that I left with you last week. Do you believe? Let's pray. Thank you for listening. For more information about The Gathering, or if you would like to hear more, please visit gatheringchattanooga.com.